What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I am your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm thrilled that you guys would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope that everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. Of course, big congrats to the LSU Tigers women's team and the Yukon Huskies men's team who won their respective national championships this weekend. That You know, we are, of course, going to talk about the whole situation that's going on with Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark, and all of the brain-dead commentators who have been giving their takes on this. I do, of course, want to talk about the new CBA that the NBA and the Players Association um, agreed on. There's also, what else do I want to talk about? There's Drew Holiday saying that Giannis is overlooked in the MVP race. Andrew Wiggins is coming back from his 20-game absence. Yeah, he was tending with the personal matter. He's coming back for the Golden State Warriors right as the play-in race is at its hottest. Also, there was I, I did a video on this last week for YouTube talking about the Dallas Mavericks and why they're in shambles since the Kyrie trade. It's not that I'm going to go back and rehash that, but there was a take from Stephen A. Smith that I saw that I wanted to react to because I think that it is a good educational point for maybe young commentators coming up in in just how to structure your argument and how you don't always have to blame the star player for everything. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But first, we have to, of course, talk about the the one news story that has dominated the cycle. It is very rare for a women's sports story to captivate the sports the 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 sports watching audience especially if it's not pertinent to the olympics if it's not pertinent to the world cup um it has to be a seismic level event almost of course caitlin clark one of the is just one of those athletes who is super captivating regardless of if you watch women's sports or not i mean she she's a demon man Straight up, she is incredible. She averaged like what twenty eight seven and eight this year. She had a forty point triple double, which I think is the only forty point triple double in NCAA Division One history for men or women. She and the Iowa Hawkeyes went up to went up against the LSU Tigers in the national championship game. They got their asses beat. I think the final score was one hundred two to eighty five. Angel Reese, who is probably the best player on LSU. Finished with 15 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 assists. She is also demonic. She is an incredible talent herself. Uh, I think she also set a record with her 34th double-double this year, which is a new women's record. But these two are not... Well, I say these two. I'm really talking about Angel Reese. Angel Reese has been getting unfairly criticized for how she conducted herself during the national championship game. She was talking trash to Caitlin Clark. She hit her with the you can't see me, the John Cena thing. She also hit she also was seen pointing at her ring finger towards the end of the game. And this caused all of the brain dead old white people to crawl out from under the bridges they were sitting and to bash this young woman for no reason. They called her classless. They were telling her to go fuck herself. They were just, you know, really beating her ass in the QRTs for doing the same thing that Caitlin Clark was doing. She 
Angel Reese ripped the You Can't See Me celebration from Caitlin Clark. And when Caitlin Clark did it, there was no backlash. There was no uproar. There was no one being sent into a tizzy. Keith Olbermann did not have anything to say about when Caitlin Clark did the celebration. So this is ultimately highlighting the tremendous double standard that exists in women's sports because Angel Reese is a black woman. Caitlin Clark is a white woman. And I don't know if these folks are doing it intentionally, but there are some subconscious racial undertones going on here because there's really no other way for you to criticize one of these women and not criticize the other if you are going to criticize them for talking shit. Before we dive into the article, I just need to say this. I do not see anything wrong with what Angel Reese did. I do not see anything wrong with what Caitlin Reese did, Caitlin Reese, with what Caitlin Clark was doing when she was talking shit. A lot of these commentators did have not played sports at a professional level. A lot of them are some of the most unathletic people that I've ever seen. And I'm not I hate to be one of those guys, but I'm going to be one of those guys. If you are not, you know, if you are not used to competition, if you're not used to playing pickup, you should not be you should not be speaking on these topics because talking trash is a natural part of any competition. It could be curling, basketball, soccer, it doesn't matter. Trash talk will always be prevalent and there's no other way to there's no other way to compete. Now, there are, of course, not everyone talks trash. I myself am not a trash talker because I don't like I just I simply I simply don't want to. I don't want to talk trash. I mean, I enjoy talking trash sometimes, but it's not a part of my game, especially because like, again, it's just pick up. But when you are competing, if you start talking trash, like if you're Caitlin Clark and you're busting all these girls asses throughout the entire postseason, you have earned your right to talk shit. And you should go out and talk your shit. Angel Reese earned her right to talk shit. And she and she did. Rightfully so. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with a little trash talk throughout the game. I mean, Caitlin Clark didn't have anything to say about it. I don't I don't think she felt disrespected by it because you know if you're a trash talker, you know that one day, one day you are going to get trash talked too, and there's nothing that you're going to be able to do about it. So this is fine. This is effectively a non-story, but it's all of the it's all of the ghouls who are decide who decided to seize this moment, the proudest moment of Angel Reese's life, arguably, winning a national championship, performing well on the biggest stage. And they're using it to dogpile on her, to tear her down when she should be at the highest. Now, fortunately, I don't think that she's taking any of this criticism seriously. So shout out to her again. Congratulations for her. I believe she was named the most outstanding player as well. So we're just going to go ahead. We're going to get into this article real quick. LSU star Angel Reese defended the gesture she aimed at Iowa Hawkeyes' Caitlin Clark near the end of the Tigers' first NCAA Women's Basketball National Championship victory on Sunday, saying, quote, 
I don't take disrespect lightly. Reese could be seen approaching Clark before moving her open hand in front of her face, popularized by WWE star John Cena to mean you can't see me, before pointing to her ring, fin her ring finger in a gesture some interpreted as a reference to the, to the place her newly acquired championship ring might sit. Clark made a similar gesture to another player earlier in the tournament. The gesture has sparked much debate, especially on social media. Some have criticized Reese while others have defended her actions, highlighting how there was no public outrage in response to Clark's gesture earlier in the tournament. Sports journalist Jose de Jesus Ortiz called Reese's actions, quote-unquote, classless, while former ESPN host Keith Olbermann called Reese a, quote-unquote, idiot for the gesture. In the press conference after the victory, Reese referenced the difference in reaction she received as a result of her gesture as compared to the one Clark received. All year, I was criticized for who I was. I don't fit the narrative, Reese said. I don't fit the box that y'all want me to be in. I'm too hood. I'm too ghetto. Y'all told me that all year. But when other people do it, y'all don't say nothing. So this is so this is for the girls that look like me, for those for those that want to speak up for what they believe in. It's unapologetically you, and that's what I did, and that's what I did it for tonight. It's it was bigger than me, and Twitter's gonna go into a rage every time. And I'm ha and I'm happy. I feel like I've helped grow women's basketball this year. I'm looking forward to celebrating, and the next season. Reese had 15 points and 10 boards in the 102-85 victory and won the Women's March Madness Most Outstanding Player Award in the in the post game in the post game. Oh my God, I'm fucking in the post game broadcast. Reese referenced the similar gesture Clark made to a Louisville opponent in the Elite Eight. In the same game, Clark said to an opponent, "Quote: You're down by 15 points. Shut up." <laughs> Man. Caitlin Clark is a hell of a player, but I don't take disrespect lightly, said Reese. She disrespected LSU's Alexis Morgan, and I wanted to pick her pocket, but I had a and I wanted to pick her pocket, but I had a moment at the end of the game. I was in my bag. I was in my moment. After the game, Clark herself said she didn't notice anything at the time. Quote, I was just trying to get to the handshake line and shake hands and be grateful that my team was in that position, Clark said in the post-game press conference. All the credit in the world to LSU. They were tremendous. They deserve it. They had a tremendous season. LSU coach Kim Mulkey coached them so, so well. She's one of the best coaches of all time, and it shows. She only, she only said really kind things to me in the handshake line, so I'm very grateful for that, too. But honestly... I have no idea. I was just trying to spend the last few moments on the court, especially with the five people that I've started 93 games with and relishing every second of that. LSU head coach Mulkey said she had no clue what happened. Among those defending Reese were ESPN's Holly Rowe and NBA star Eaton, 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 I, I, fuck, I can never pronounce this fool's name. Eaton Thomas. Eaton Thomas. Quote, people hating on Angel Reese or Caitlin Clark, stop. Unapologetically confident young women should be celebrated, not hated. Get used to it, wrote Roe on Twitter. Former Washington Wizards guard, uh, former Wizards, Thunder, and Hawks player Thomas wrote, quote, hold on now. It was cute when Caitlin Clark did it. Y'all didn't have any issues with it at all. So don't be outraged and talking about class and sportsmanship when Angel Reese did the same thing. We're not doing double standards here. Reese said the negative reaction on social media throughout the season helped fuel her excellent season, having finished with 23 points and 15 boards in her first season with LSU after transferring from Maryland. She said, quote, Twitter can say what they want to say. I love reading those comments. Okay, Angel Reese, stop reading the comments. It, 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 you do not need to read the comments. Please stop. <laughs> Please stop. I have all the screenshots of what everybody has said about me all season. What are you going to say now? I think that this is, again, it should it should have been a non-story. All of these fucking idiots that are on Twitter, all these, you know, 
people like Keith Olbermann and Dave Portnoy, all these folks on Twitter who are making fun of Angel Reese. You guys, you need, you need a hobby. You need to go out, go play tennis, go play bocce ball. Like if you're Keith Olbermann and you're like 60, go play pickleball. Like you have other things to do than to try to bring down a young woman over some dumb shit. You know, all she did was the John Cena, you can't see me to Caitlin Clark. That's it. It's not like she fucking assaulted her. It's not like she kicked her dog off of a bridge. It's not like she pushed her grandma down the stairs. It was all the emotion of the competition. And all she did was a little bit of this. That's it. There's no reason for this for this uproar. And it just like it it makes me really fucking sad that people do not know how to it makes me really fucking sad that people don't know how to behave themselves online. The only way that, like, the only time it is acceptable to make fun of someone for talking trash is if they're bad. So I condone trash talk for, you know, most people who trash talk because generally only the elite players know that they can get away with talking trash. The only time I don't condone it is when, like, Dylan Brooks is talking trash. If Angel Reese was playing like Dylan Brooks, then I would say she had no reason to do that. Like, if she had seven points on three of 13 shooting, I'd tell, like, that's when I'd be like, okay, like, you're playing like ass. You have to earn the right to talk shit. Like, you have to play, you have to play well in order to be able to talk trash. But, bro, she had 15, 10, and 5. She's well within her right to be talking shit to the best player on the other team especially when you're beating them by 13, 15, 18 points or however much it was. So this whole situation is silly. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't believe when I opened Twitter and I saw this, I'm like, there's no fucking way that people are actually in their feelings about this. This is natural. This is like, this is the most innocuous thing that someone can do on the basketball court. And people are making a big deal out of it. And it sucks. Like, I, I just feel so bad that I just feel so bad that women like Angel Reese have to go through this kind of shit on a daily basis. But like, I'm glad that she is not letting it bother her. I'm glad that she is celebrating the achievement that she rightfully should be celebrating. So shout out to her and shame on all you fucking sexless losers for just being stupid, being just ugh. Just disgusting. Anyway. Okay, so we're going to talk about the new CBA because I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'm a little bit of a labor nerd, guys. Now, this was a milestone because... This is a milestone because every time the NBA and the Players Association agree on a new CBA, it bypasses the possibility of a lockout. It effectively shuts down any chances of a lockout, and you will have basketball for five, six, seven, eight more years, however long it is scheduled to last. So this was reported on April Fool's Day. So this past Friday, I believe, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever. This is, of course, courtesy of our big, beautiful boy, Adrian Wojnarowski. Um, the NBA and the Players Association have reached an agreement on a new seven-year collective bargaining agreement promising labor peace throughout the rest of the decade. The tentative deal, which starts with the 2023-2024 season, was announced by the league and union and is expected to be ratified by governors and players in the coming weeks. The deal includes a mutual opt-out after the six-year, sources told. 
ESPN. There were several key uh, provisions in this contract, some of which I like, some of which I'm a little iffy on, and then others where it's just kind of like, it's cool the players get like, um, one of the things that I guess, I, I don't want to say I'm agnostic on, I think it's great, but there are players who are now eligible for like 140% of an extension as opposed to 120 or something goofy like that. So someone like Jalen Brown, instead of signing an extension for $160 million, can now sign an extension for $180 million. But the first point that's mentioned in the article here is the NBA curbing the ability of the highest spending teams like the Warriors and Clippers. It's hold on. The NBA is curbing the ability of the highest spending teams such as the Warriors and Clippers to continue running up salary and luxury tax spending while still maintaining mechanisms to add talent to the roster. The league is implementing a second salary cap apron. 17 and a half million over the tax line and those teams will lose several key building mechanisms including the taxpayer mid-level exception utilizing cash in trades moving first round picks in drafts that are seven years away signing free agents in the buyout market and taking on more money than is being sent out in trades this was a provision that draymond green did not take too kindly to and when i first saw it i'm like i don't understand what his beef would be but I recognize the fact that it is a little weird for the NBA to penalize teams that are willing to spend in this manner. So there were talks about a more of a of a hard cap being instituted in this CBA where once you hit that spending limit you cannot go over, which is the it's not it's way more it's way stricter than how the current cap system works where you are allowed to exceed the cap as long as the team or the owners pay out of pocket um all the penalties so i don't mind that system i don't mind owners spending to build contenders because being cheap is something that you know owners governors whatever you want to call them throughout the years have tried to do and that's not like you don't build a contender that way. So when a team like the Lakers goes over the salary cap or goes over the luxury tax, when a team like Golden State goes over Milwaukee, Brooklyn, I don't mind it. I'm also, I also see that you can't have unlimited spending because then it gets super wacky. Like you don't want it to be like baseball where a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers can effectively build their dream team. Granted, in baseball, that doesn't necessarily constitute success, but the NBA being such an individual, in individualistic sport that would that would simply not work I don't want to see that I also don't know if I think that this is the way that the league should punish teams I don't think that you should not allow them to add talent when they're already over the luxury tax if you do want to if you want to institute some kind of consequence just keep compounding the penalties that they'll that they're going to have to pay out of pocket I would imagine that that is enough of a deterrent. Plus, you are also kind of robbing the fans in this regard because the fans don't give a fuck about all of this salary cap stuff. Okay, the the average fan wants to see their team wants to see their team succeed. They want to see they want to see their team play well. They want to see the stars go out and do their thing, but they want to see their team win a championship. And this is a provision that and Woj alludes to it here. This is a provision that would have barred Dante DiVincenzo from going to Golden State. 
would have barred Joe Ingles from going to Boston. Danilo Gallinari from going to Boston. I'm sorry, Joe Ingles. It would have barred him from going to Milwaukee. Patty Mills from going to Brooklyn. John Wall to the Clippers. They wouldn't have been able to make those deals. Now, granted, how much are these guys impacting their current teams? Well, Joe Ingles, although he might not be having the biggest impact on the Bucks, he is a huge piece. Being a floor spacer, being a playmaker, being a defender, that is a huge piece for a team like Milwaukee. Dante DiVincenzo, if Golden State were performing better on the road, he would be a, he would be a serious difference maker. Same thing with Patty Mills, even though he fell out of the rotation recently and you know it, it wasn't really that great of a fit. It's just, if nothing else, having a guy like him in the locker room. So I don't think that this is the right way to go about it. I could see why the players are a little I can see why the players are a little iffy about that, but if this is one of the compromises that the players association would have had to make, I I'd rather them do this than compromise in a way that like directly impacts the player, whether it be revenue sharing, whether it be structures of the contract, stuff like that. So another thing that was included is an attempt to curb load management and lost games among star players. The NBA is trying eligibility for postseason awards, such as the All-NBA teams and the MVP, to a mandatory 65 games. The 65-game minimum does come with some conditions. I think this is the this is one of this is probably the best thing in the CBA. Okay, maybe not, but I think it's I think it's close. At least from you know, a content creator perspective, um, a quote unquote media person, the whole injury debates when it comes to awards is so fucking annoying because you're trying to figure out this arbitrary line, this arbitrary cutoff line for players. Like Joel Embiid plays 31 games during his uh during his rookie year, or at least when he was eligible for the rookie of the year award. And obviously, folks were using that against him, but it didn't automatically disqualify him, which made the whole voting process a huge pain in the ass because statistically, Embiid was way better than uh, Malcolm Brogdon, and I believe Dario Saric was a rookie that year as well. Embiid was way better than them, but he missed two-thirds of the season. So, And again, particularly for MVP, you don't want to have guys eligible for these big-time awards if they haven't been healthy for the entire year. Now, the NBA, the MVP is a little different. Generally, the guys who are in the MVP conversation have been healthy for most of the year. Like, Jokic has been healthy for most of the year. Tatum has been healthy for most of the year. Same thing with Giannis. I mean, LeBron having an MVP caliber campaign, but he's missed too many games. I just like this being set in stone. I like this. I like the guesswork being taken out. So that way, the people who do vote don't have to worry about that when they're cooking up the arguments in their head. Because it's just a huge pain in the ass when there's a guy who's deserving of an award, but you're like, do I do I give it to this dude who's played 60 games with better numbers? Or do I give it to the guy who's played in 75 games with slightly worse numbers? So I think this is a good provision. I don't hate it. Um, I would like to see what the conditions are. I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah, and before this, the only, I think the only award that had an actual games played limit was six man of the year, 
where you were not allowed to play more than 50% of your games. You were not allowed to start more than 50% of your games, which obviously for that kind of award is is necessary. I also don't know if this is going to curb the... I don't know. This is not going to fix load management because no one who's in the MVP race is load managing 27 games. It it does it they're they're simply not doing it. Like yeah, Kawhi Leonard did it, but he has not been a he's not been in the MVP conversation this year. Um so this is not I don't think this is gonna do anything to curb load management. I think load management is a more systemic issue that is reflective of the acceleration of the players' talents being beyond the methods of treatment at this point and also I think that the schedule is too much the only way that you fix load management is you lighten the schedule the NBA doesn't they have seemingly no interest in entertaining that idea but I believe it's the only way to tackle this cause there's also the in-season tournament could arrive as soon as 2023 2024, the event will include pool play games baked into the regular season schedule starting in November with eight teams advancing to a single elimination tournament in December. The final four will be held at a neutral site. Each in-season tournament game would count towards regular season standings. The two finalists would ultimately play an 83rd game that would not count in the regular season. Why the actual fuck? Why is the NBA bitching about load management? Why is Adam Silver complaining about load management and then is like you know what would be great more games and I don't care if it's only one game that 83rd game at the end of the season at the end of a playoff race at the end of the at the end of the um the races for the play-in tournament no one's going to want to do that it's unnecessary minutes, it's unnecessary stress, it's unnecessary travel. It is quite actually counterproductive to what they're trying to do with the awards minimum. It's not accomplishing that. The play in the in-season tournament only works if you have like a 60 game schedule or like a 65 game schedule and then those 8 games bring up the total to 73. Pool play works like tournaments in season tournaments work in Europe because the Euro because the, the European season is only like 35 games long. They don't play that much. The games are also shorter. It's less of a load that these players are dealing with when they go overseas. So this is absolutely fucking stupid. I also just hate the idea of, a, of an in season tournament. I think it's gimmicky. I think that the players know it's gimmicky. It's a way to like bring some. It, it's a way to, I guess, draw engagement early in the season. Start, be, yeah, starting in November with the um, tournament in December. It's a way to draw up engagement earlier in the season, but no one's interested in the NBA until December. I'm a fucking NBA stan, and I'm not interested in the NBA until December because all of the games before that, it's not that they're meaningless, but it's not you. Everyone knows that what the teams look like in October, November is vastly different to what they'll look like in February and March. Everyone knows that. So you want to wait for these teams to build a rhythm. And then you're also like trying to analyze your favorite team, but you don't want to seem too reactionary because again, the season doesn't really start until December. 
right? Especially since they're trying to start the season earlier. They're having shorter preseasons. They're having shorter training camps. So uh, I guess th- this is my roundabout way of saying that I've I've despised the idea of an in-season tournament. I will still I will despise the idea of an in-season tournament until the NBA lightens the schedule. Because load management is their biggest issue right now, but they're not taking any steps to solve the problem. The M- the uh, NBA and the Players Association have in- have agreed to increase the upper limits on extensions from a 120% increase to 140, which could have significant impact on the futures of stars like Jalen Brown, Demonte Sabonis. Um, yeah, what I was talking about before, under the cor- current rules, Brown would be allowed to sign a four-year extension worth $165 million. Um, with the extension rules increased, however, the final year of his contract, Brown would be able to reach his four-year maximum of, of $190 million. So this is one of those provisions that directly impacts the player, that directly puts more money in the player's pocket. Um, granted, it's not every player who's going to be who's going to be eligible for this, but still, like more money is not a bad thing. More money for anybody is not a bad thing. Uh, listen, as long as you're not a billionaire, I have no issues with you making more money, especially if it's income, especially if it's income like this. So I don't have an issue with it. The NBA and the Players Association agreed to eliminate restrictions that limited a team to do to two designated Supermax contract players on a roster. Teams weren't allowed to trade for a third Supermax player or to sign one to a rookie extension. This rule change could have a near-term impact on the Cleveland Cavaliers, who have two designated Supermax contract players, Darius uh, Garland and Donovan Mitchell, and burgeoning young center Evan Mobley approaching his rookie extension. I think that's fine. Again, my philosophy is that if a team wants to pay out of pocket, if an owner wants to pay out of pocket to build a contender, let them. As long as there are some penalties, as long as there is some deterrent, I don't have an issue with that. Um, I would maybe have an issue depending on if, you know, they extended it to four Supermax players, then it would be a little goofy because then you're approaching no cap territory. And I don't want that, but especially if you have a young core like this, I mean, Darius Garland and Evan Mobley have effectively grown up together. You know, you trade for Donovan Mitchell because you're trying to, you're trying to build a contender. I see no issues with that. Uh, the Players Association and the league agreed on some improved leverage for restricted free agents, including a 10% increase in qualifying work offers and shortening the matching period from 48 to 24 hours. That's just one of those logistical things that... I guess um, the basketball operations people wanted a way to like expedite free agency because two days, especially early in free agency is a fucking long ass time. So I'm kind of, I guess I'm agnostic on that because I'm not really like a cap guy for the first time since inception of the modern CBA in 1983, the team and league licensing revenue estimated to be worth 160 million for the 2024 season will be added into the shared pool of basketball related income. Owners and players spit, spit, owners and players spit, split the basketball-related income, and that licensing revenue is expected to grow annually Annually, with the salary cap in ensuing years. So that also puts more money in the player's pocket. 
I think the current revenue split is 51-49 in favor of the players. So the players are getting like the player pool is getting an extra 80 million. Again, it's not a lot when you consider some of the contracts that are that are being thrown around, but that could make a difference for guys who are lower tier players, um, lower contract guys, stuff like that. So yeah, I don't mind it. Also, again, more money for the league is good because as we saw during COVID, no money, no NBA. That that's just the unfortunate reality of how of the business of sports, unfortunately. There is an increase in two-way contract slots jumping from two to three per team. Two-way contracts were created in the 2017 CBA as a vehicle for teams to develop younger players. It has been seen as a, as a success, and it's become a route to players earning long-term homes in the league and in several cases becoming major contributors. Austin Reeves, Alex Caruso, Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Anthony Lamb, Jose Alvarado. This is great. I think the, and I think the players and the league know the value of a robust minor league system of really filling out the infrastructure of the G League, allowing teams more opportunity to develop homegrown talent. I mean, the minors in baseball is huge. It's absolutely tremendous. And I don't think the NBA will ever reach that level, but just a a more, a, a deeper talent pool for teams is never a bad thing. And plus the fans, the fans love players who are homegrown. The fans love when a guy comes up from the G League and is earning time with this organization and they see him develop in real time. Fans love that shit. So this is great. Um, I would say maybe more two-way contracts. Even if like you can have up to five two-way contracts on a team, maybe something like that. Um just maybe some of those guys won't be allowed to play in the games, but they'll be able to travel with the team. They'll be able to practice with the team just so they can kind of get their feet wet and get used to what it's like being a professional. Um, that's it, huh? Yeah, I guess I guess that's it. So all in all, I you know, this isn't one of those CBAs where you see a dramatic rework of really anything that is right in front of you, like revenue splits, stuff like that, benefits, pensions. I'm sure there's way more in there that we haven't been able to discuss. I think it was like 600 pages or something, if I remember. But like, there are some good provisions in there. Again, we just talked about the um, added two-way contracts, more money in basketball-related income, the games minimum for all NBA and the NBA awards. I think those are good. Yeah, I... Above all else, I'm just happy that we are not going to have a lockout because I understand the importance of, you know, collective bargaining. I understand that the players union wants what they want. And, you know, I, I fully support the lockouts as weird as that, as you know, as weird as that may sound like it's literally against my best interest. But I think that when you are dealing with labor discussions, um, whether it's for the NBA or whether it's for Starbucks or whether it's for, you know, sanitation companies, it's important that the employees get what they want. And it's important that they walk away knowing that they got the better deal. Of course, it's great when strikes don't happen because that means both sides have reached, you know, a compromise rapidly, which is great. It also means that both sides were acting in good faith, I feel. And I feel like as 
these discussions have become higher profile, the ownership class has been less douchey to the employees, at least outwardly. Still, I mean, it's again, it's a it's a conflict of interest, you know, between the ownership class and the players in this case. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see a lockout be avoided. Now, what do we want to talk about next? Um, let's talk about Andrew Wiggins. We're talking about Andrew Wiggins because I don't really feel like I'll have a lot to say about this aside from, you know, like the regular, the regular shit. Okay, so Andrew Wiggins is nearing a return to the team that is expected to be back early next week. Sources told Woj on Monday, Wiggins, who's missed 22 games attending to a family matter, is expected to be back in the Bay Area as soon as the next 24 hours. It's unclear how much Wiggins will play in the team's final three regular season games, but his return would come with, would come with enough time to prepare for the play-in tournament and playoffs beginning next week. The Warriors are currently the sixth seed in the West. Quote, we'd love to have him and hope that that does, that, that does happen because we want to be whole, and I'm sure he wants to be a part of this, said Steph last week. But when he walks in the door, it'll be when it's the right time for him. That's kind of the expectation at this point. Um, Warriors coach Steve Kerr said that Wiggins has been working out every day while away from the team, but as he returns to the facilities, the training and medical staff would evaluate his fitness and conditioning to determine how soon he would be able to play. Wiggins has missed a total of 42 games this season with left foot soreness, a strained adductor, and about with a non with a non-COVID-19 illness. So Wiggins, again, is having a very productive season. I believe he's at like 17 points a game, um, something like that. Is still excelling defensively. Yeah, he's averaging 17, shooting 40% from three, damn near 30, 39.6. We'll just fucking round up. Um, and folks... Listen, I'm happy he's back. I'm glad that whatever situation he was dealing with has seemingly resolved itself. And, you know, Wiggins is able to return to the team. There were, of course, some fucking weirdos online who were like, he should not be away from the team for this long. He, he It simply should not be allowed. He should not be allowed to go 10 for a family matter. And I'm like, what kind of fucking, what kind of, like, who were you cucked to to have that opinion? Like, let the guy deal with what he's got to deal with. You know, shit's going on. And if he doesn't want to make it public, oh, no, that was the beef. That was the beef, was that people on Twitter were upset with the reporters. I can't remember if it was Marcus Thompson or um, I forget who it was. But the fans were upset that the details of why Wiggins was not with the team were not being publicized. And the journalists were like, it's none of your fucking business why he's not with the team. He's attending to a personal matter. And when the matter is resolved, he'll return. Well, seemingly the matter is, is resolved. Fortunately, I will say that I don't know how much Andrew Wiggins impacts Golden State upon his return. So in 37 starts for the Warriors this year, they are 19 and 18 with him in the lineup. And the Warriors are just not that great. This year, their depth is atrocious. Uh, defensively, they are laughable, which is very uncharacteristic of them. I mean, this is the team going into the season whose over-under was 52.5. They were plus 600 to win the championship. I thought that they were going to go back to the finals. I thought that we were going to have a repeat, Boston and Golden State. And it has not turned It has not turned out that way. Part of it is because they are absolutely disastrous on the road. I think they're like seven and 30 
away from Oakland. If you cannot win on the road, you cannot win in the playoffs. And Andrew Wiggins, as much as he brings defensively, as much as he brings offensively, as a floor spacer, as a cutter, as a slasher, you know, the Warriors can definitely benefit from getting him back. But he's not going to overhaul this team. He's coming back with three games left. He, I don't think he plays more than 18 or 20 minutes in his first game back. I don't think that he makes a noticeable impact until potentially the play-in. But even then, you and that's if the Warriors sink to the play-in. If they don't, they'll stand a little bit better of a chance. But I still don't believe that they have the defensive prowess to meaningfully compete for a title this year. But they are just one game out of the play-in. So it is very likely that they find themselves going up against... New Orleans, or Minnesota, potentially Dallas, potentially Oklahoma City, potentially the Lakers. And I just don't know if I like Golden State against any of those teams. I'm, I think they're better. Oh, I don't think that Dallas is beating anybody this year. There are, there are also rumblings that Luka and Kyrie will be shut down for the final handful of games. So, I mean, if Dallas managed to get in, I'd take Golden State over them. I think I'd take Golden State over OKC as well, but I talked last week, and I feel that you know teams like the Lakers and teams like the Pelicans have really solid chances of upsetting one of the top seeds in the first round. New Orleans in particular, just because I feel that they are a bit more well-rounded, but you look at the Lakers. You look at how LeBron is playing. You look at how Anthony Davis is playing. This guy had like 79 points in back-to-back games over the weekend. You look at D'Angelo Russell. I mean, there is a lot of talent in that play-in. I mean, the Clippers, we don't know what's going on with the Clippers. The Clippers could be a play-in team as well. So there's so much uncertainty. And unfortunately, you know, bringing back Andrew Wiggins is great, but it's not the same as, say, Steph was gone for 20 games or if Draymond was gone for 20 games. Like, then there would be serious, you know, you could seriously consider Golden State doing something because you're bringing back a generational talent. I think that Andrew Wiggins is a great player. I think that he fits phenomenally well with Golden State. I just don't think that he brings enough to the table to to alter their fate that much. So, okay, two more stories and then we're going to we're going to be out of here. Is Giannis overlooked as an MVP candidate? The Bucks, the Bucks say this. I don't necessarily know who who on the box? I think it was Drew Holiday. But they feel that Giannis is not getting the the appropriate love in the MVP discussion. So we're going to go ahead and stroll through this article. Courtesy of ESPN, Jamal Collier. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's pronounced Collier. Collier, I don't know. I'm sorry, man. I'm definitely mispronouncing your name. As Bucks star Giannis Antetokounmpo stepped up to the free throw line, with 546 remaining in the fourth quarter Sunday night against the Sixers, the sold-out crowd at at Milwaukee's Pfizer Forum began to serenade him with the familiar tune. MVP. MVP. Antetokounmpo was putting the finishing touches on another dominant performance. He scored 33 on 13 of 79. On 13 of 17 shooting. Holy moly. 13 of 79. Fucking talk about Dylan Brooks. Am I right? Grabbed 14 rebounds and dished out six assists to outduel Sixers star Joel Embiid 
and put the stamp on Milwaukee's 56th win of the season, the most in the NBA. The victory brought the Bucs closer to locking up the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They lead the Boston Celtics by two games with four remaining and added more fuel to Antetokounmpo's case for a third MVP. Mike Budenholzer said, quote, We certainly feel like Giannis is the MVP. Best player, best record, what he does on both ends of the court, the rebounding, the blocked shots, the defense, guarding on the perimeter. He does everything. Playmakes, attacks, gets to the free throw line. We feel like he's in the conversation and he should be the guy. Giannis is averaging 31 points on 55% shooting with 12 rebounds and 5.6 assists in 62 games this season. While he expressed gratitude for being considered among the leaders for the award, Antetokounmpo said he was not focused on trying to win MVP, keeping the emphasis on the Bucks' goals as a team. It's a great compliment, he said after Sunday's game. I was happy when I won my first two. I'm happy the last five years I'm able to be in the conversation. I'm happy that I'm able to be consistent. I'm happy I'm able to help my team be great, but that's the goal. That's the only goal. Keep putting myself in a position to help the team be great. In ESPN's latest MVP straw poll conducted last week, Antetokounmpo finished third behind Embiid and Nikola Jokic with Giannis grabbing 18 out of a possible 101st place votes. Drew Holiday says, Giannis has been MVP too much. He's been doing this too much. I feel people are getting bored of it. It's kind of like the LeBron James effect. LeBron has done it so many times that people think it's normal now, and it's not. But Giannis makes it look so easy. The first couple of years that he got it, it's like, wow, nobody can do that. And it's still, to this day, nobody can do what he does. He's on the number one team, not just in the East, but in the league. And beat on Sunday finished with 29 points, 9 boards, and 5 assists in a game the Sixers never let. Philly is currently third in the East and fell the three games back of Boston for the number two seed. Embiid leads the NBA in scoring, averaging 33 a night on 54% shooting with 10 boards, four assists. He finished second in MVP voting behind Jokic in each of the last two seasons. Meanwhile, Jokic missed his third consecutive game on Sunday because of right calf tightness, but he's challenging for his third consecutive MVP as well. He's averaging 25 points, 12 boards, and 9.9 assists for Denver, the number one seed in the Western Conference. The MVP race could be decided in the final week of the season. And with Milwaukee on the verge of wrapping up the league's best record, the Bucks believe Antetokounmpo's name should be mentioned at the forefront of any of these conversations. Quote, it's honestly like he makes being elite, elite, and all-time great player look routine, said Brooke Lopez, which in itself is impressive. I think people I think people maybe don't hold it against him, but it's voter fatigue. Jokic is a great player, all-deserved, and Embiid is a great player, all-deserved, but it's just kind of the way it is with Giannis. He's so great that that's the reality that comes with it. I, yeah, voter fatigue is setting in for Giannis. Uh, when I saw Drew Holiday's quote, I'm like, this guy hit it. This guy hit the nail on the head. He's just too dominant. He's too good. He is too impressive, which is weird to say because, uh, like, obviously, yeah. No one is saying that Giannis is a bad player, but 31-12-5, it's, it's normal for him. It's regular. It's a bad game when Giannis finishes with, like, 20-18-6. It's a bad game for him. People were even talking about Giannis having a down year because although his num like, statistically— his volume was there. His efficiency has fallen off a little bit over previous years. So folks are like, what's the deal with Giannis? Is he okay? But undeniably, Giannis is one of, if not the best player in the league right now, as is Nikola Jokic. And as the season's gone on, I picked Tatum to be the MVP in the preseason. I thought the Celtics were going to be better than Milwaukee this year. I thought that Tatum 
was going to have the type of season that he's having. You know, 30 points, eight boards, pretty good efficiency for a volume shooter, improved as a playmaker, improved as a defender. But, you know, I cannot sit here and say that I think that Jason Tatum is the MV- is the NBA MVP, especially when both Giannis and Jokic are the two best players in the NBA on the two best teams. And it's no disrespect to Joel Embiid, but his numbers are comparable to Giannis's, but the Sixers are just the Sixers cannot compete with Milwaukee. So I'm I'm currently deciding between Giannis and Jokic. I think Giannis, Jokic, Tatum, and Embiid would be my four if I had to, you know, start trying to make a ballot, but I wouldn't be able to pick between Giannis or Jokic at this point. I'm going to need to wait till the last game of the regular season. I'm going to need to see how Denver looks at the end of the season, how Milwaukee looks at the end of the season. Because on the one hand, Jokic is averaging a triple-double as a center, shooting like 61% from the floor. The palpable difference in how Denver looks when he's on the court and when he's not is insane. I rarely have seen anything like it. Now, is that is obviously a testament to Jokic's greatness, but Denver is not as complete a team as Milwaukee is, for example. Because Milwaukee can still bust ass when Giannis is not there, which is very rare to see on a team with a guy as dominant as Giannis. I think that maybe folks see how great Giannis has been or how great Milwaukee has been with Giannis being in in and out of the lineup. I also didn't know he only played in 62 games. So he would barely meet the cutoff for the awards minimum if that happened, if that were here for this season. But I think that people see how great Milwaukee is when Giannis isn't there and they kind of just forget. You know, they hold the collective greatness of Milwaukee against Giannis, whereas Denver does not have those optics, which obviously benefits Jokic for all of the other reasons that, you know, he's in front of the MVP race. I don't necessarily know if Giannis is being overlooked in the MVP race because that implies that he's not being talked about at all. So I don't necessarily know if I have beef with the sentiments in this article. Um, but I do feel that the term overlooked is a little misguided because this is because he is being acknowledged. His great play is being talked about. He is going to be a finalist for the MVP. It'd be different if he were having this season and nobody was talking about him. Then you could say, okay, yeah, he's definitely being overlooked. And yes, I understand I'm being pedantic here, but it's kind of necessary when you are talking about the MVP race and when you are talking about postseason awards because like it's just it's just a little nuance that is necessary in the conversation. So do I think that voter fatigue is a thing? Oh I one million percent think that voter fatigue is a thing. I will say right now, I don't care who wins MVP this year, if Jokic wins it, if Giannis wins it, whoever wins it this year will actually get overlooked for the MVP next year. They will, at that point, actually start to get the LeBron treatment. So, I'm not ready for that, but I just know how these things. I just know how these things go, unfortunately. So, 
yeah, don't don't believe anyone who says that. <laughs> don't believe anyone who says that Giannis is not being mentioned in the MVP debate. In the MVP debate, because he definitely is. He is just suffering. He, Drew Holiday said it best. He's suffering from voter fatigue because he makes greatness look routine. And now for our final piece of content today, we have my favorite, the one. The only Stephen A. talking about Kyrie not being the Mavs problem, Luca is. So I'm just going to let this, this video Stephen play. Smith, you look, listening to right now, and I don't have a single negative syllable to utter about Kyrie Irving. He is not the problem in Dallas with the Mavs. He's averaging 26 a game, 51% shooting from the field, about 37% shooting from three-point range. He's a reliable offensive weapon in the fourth quarter. He has brought to Dallas what you brought him to Dallas to do. Luca is the one, dare I say, that has a huge question mark hovering over him. And it's nothing statistical. That's the beauty of what Kendrick Perkins just pointed out. Luca is on the verge of becoming the first player since LeBron James in 2004-2005 to score 2,000 points, over 500 rebounds, and 500 assists in a season and not make the playoffs. That's mm. what Luka is on the verge of doing. And if you look about clutch points, because we talk about clutch time or whatever, what is that? Like five-point you know, margin over the last five minutes of a game? That's what defines... Uh, I, I think I'm going to pause it here just so I can... Um, I don't want to get my ash cheeks clapped for like fair use, but I think where Stephen A goes wrong is not talking about statistics. When you start to question the, uh, and I think I'm spoiling it here, the like quote unquote leadership of a player, or when you are trying to debate a point and you begin talking about intangibles, you lost the debate because since there's no way to quantify it, since there's no way to quantify his leadership, there's really no way to counter that argument. Now, later on in this clip, in a little bit, Stephen A does actually bring up actual points, but they're independent of the argument that he's trying to make. Clutch time. Dallas Mavericks have 14 losses in clutch time this year. 14, okay? And we all know they're like 8 and 16 since Kyrie Irving has arrived and 7 and 12 with Kyrie and Doncic on the floor at the same time. He's missed seven games since Kyrie has been there. Kyrie has missed five. The reason why I love where you're going with this, Kendrick Perkins, is because this is the important point to bring up about Luka. Luka gets 41. They lose a game. Luka's not only depressed after the game, he looks depressed during the game. Mm -hmm. You talk about a level of demoralization that's kicked in. This is one of the things that I was told prior, before Kyrie ever never played the game. We're going to find out about Luka. This is by an NBA official. We're going to find out about Luka, not his game, but his leadership because of what KP brought up. You have Porzingis. Didn't work out. Somehow, some way, y'all don't come up with the money to get keep Jalen Brunson, even though he balled out for you. Dropped 41 in the game against Utah. Dropped 31 in the conference finals against, against, against Golden State. Was doing things against Phoenix as well. 
We looked at it. It got to the conference finals, obviously, last year. You had Jalen Brunson. You let him walk out the door. You had Dorian Finney-Smith. You had Spencer Dinwiddie. So you had a team that was good enough to get you to the conference finals. You gave up two bodies for one in Kyrie Irving, and obviously that was going to compromise you defensively so we could bring up Nico Harrison, who I'm a fan of and I believe in the brother, and I want to give him every opportunity to succeed. But the bottom line is their roster doesn't look as formidable as you would like defensively, just like Kendrick Perkins just pointed out. That last point. The roster does not look as formidable defensively as you would like. How is that? an indictment on Luka's leadership because Stephen A is arguing two different points here. He's arguing you're going to find out about Luka as a person or as a leader. Okay, I think that the whole leadership discussion in sports is bullshit because even if Luka may or may not be a leader in the locker room, he is without a doubt a leader by example. This guy's averaging like 33 10 and 9. He's a leader by example. I don't want to hear this shit about, oh, you know, he, he he's not a he's not a rah-rah guy in the locker room, this, that, whatever. He looks sad on the sideline. Bitch, you would look sad on the sideline too if your front office just fucking tanked your playoff chances by trading Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie for Kyrie Irving. You'd be upset too, especially after you just put up 41 in a game that you lost, especially when there have been multiple instances where the where the Dallas Mavericks have lost games that they should have won because there's no one to compliment Luka. That's the first point. Now, the second point. All right, I guess it's the second point. He mentions KP. KP and Luka just did not work out for some reason. Luka was coming off, uh, not Luka, KP was coming off an ACL injury or a knee injury, whichever it was. I forget the specifics of it. They were both younger. But that second season in Dallas... He was playing better. He was more efficient. He looked like he fit in offensively. So I don't know, again, how that is also an indictment on Luka's leadership. Um, I, I just, I, I, have, I have trouble understanding that. Like, I mean, I, I know it didn't work out for them, but you can't just blame it on Luka for the mismanagement of the coaching staff or the player development staff. And yes, he has the ball in his hand, so he... He has an obligation to get his guys involved, but the guys on the team know what the pecking order is. But still, KP played well during his years in Dallas. He just was still trying to reach the maybe unreasonable expectations that others had put onto him when he was with New York. You then have the Jalen Brunson situation, which is not fucking Lucas' fault. How is it Lucas' fault that management doesn't want to pay Jalen Brunson? How is that Lucas' fault? I'm finding I'm finding myself to be hard pressed to put blame on Luca. And I mean, listen, I did a whole video on this already. I talked about this already. Like the issue with Dallas right now isn't Luca and it's not Kyrie. It's the rest of the roster and it's management's inability to construct a roster that can compete for anything beyond a playing spot. And them trading for Kyrie Irving did not help did not help them. I do just I should have looked this up yesterday. I want to see what Luca's clutch stats are. Because it is very fascinating that this gets brought up. Because the clutch framework, I guess, 
game within five points within the final five minutes or whatever it is, is good data, but data that is potentially malicious. Because on a team like Dallas, when the game is close and when the game is, when it's late in the game and when it's late in a close game, one of two things are going to happen. Luka is going to face defensive pressure that he had not faced all game long because Dallas does not because Dallas does not have the other pieces on offense to offset the overzealous nature of the defense. The second thing that's going to happen is Luka is going to be burnt out because he spent the first 35, 36, 38 minutes of this game, at least when he was on the court, trying to make sure that Dallas was in it. So, again, like the point that Stephen A is making Dallas stinks because the the team stinks. They don't stink because Luka exclusively stinks. Or they don't stink because Kyrie exclusively stinks. Like the, they're giving you 57 a night between them. They're both shooting close to 50% from the field. They stink because management built a stinky roster. And I think that this because this is actually like this is one of those rare instances when I see someone debating a team being stinky and they're actually bringing facts up in this situation. You know, trading Spencer Dinwiddie and trading Dorian Finney-Smith is a fact that directly contributes to Dallas being stinky. But you don't always have to blame the star players for a team being bad. Like sometimes the team is bad. They're not bad because of the star player. They're bad in spite of the star player. And we're seeing that with Dallas. So I think it's I think it's disingenuous to dogpile on Luka and claim this is his fault. And I said this last week, as much as, you know, whatever I may feel about Kyrie Irving for how he conducted himself with the Brooklyn Nets, I feel that it's, unpo- it's unfair to criticize him as well in this situation. The only, you know, really, the only valid criticism of them is that they haven't been able to stay healthy down the stretch of the season, which is true, which also is something that you could have brought up in this argument. It's something that Stephen A. could have mentioned, the fact that Lucas missed eight games, Kyrie's missed six or seven, whatever it is. It's impossible to build a rhythm that way. And also, again, combined with the fact that this team does not have the appropriate weapons to offset those two guys. So with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and close it out. That's really all I had to talk about today. So thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out. Um, everything I'm associated with is linked down below. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching any of these videos on YouTube. Be sure to leave a like as well. This is uh, You can listen to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you consume your podcast. Be sure to leave a rating, leave a review, follow, subscribe, whatever you can do to engage with it is much appreciated. Um, yeah, I'll catch you guys in the next one.